Before we introduce today's guest, a quick reminder that we really love hearing from you about how these conversations inform, inspire, or help you make sense of the world around you. So at the end of the show, we'd love you to hit subscribe and give us a quick review and some gold stars on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. On an ordinary day in August 2018, Craig Hopper woke up living the dream, got ready for the day, kissed his three kids goodbye and went off to work. Meanwhile, his wife dropped their youngest at school and set off as a fit 46-year-old on her regular morning run. But what happened next changed their lives forever. Craig's wife suffered a massive heart attack and was found by a passing cyclist unresponsive, unconscious and without a pulse. It took 24 hours to get her heart started again, 10 days in a coma, 7 operations and 10 weeks in hospital before she was finally able to return home to the family with a brain injury. Well, this is her story, it's also the story of how Craig, as her partner, became an instant carer to four dependents, adjusted to this complex new normal, and is still finding a way to navigate the difficult journey through hope to grief and beyond. In this episode, Craig shares his insights on the healing magic of talking and the unexpected power of asking for help. Here's our conversation with Craig. Craig, it's great to have you here for a conversation today on Human Cogs. Before we start with where you're at right now as we chat to you in the middle of a pandemic from three different parts of of, of Melbourne and Sydney, but Craig, anchored in the present where you are right now in Sydney, I'd actually like us to go back into your life about three years ago in 2018. And at that time, you were happily married with three kids and your wife. Tell us about your life then. Life was wonderful. In hindsight, I think we... We all think uh, we have challenges, but life then was great. So a beautiful family, a lovely wife, uh, three wonderful children. I had a great job. The kids were all settled. Uh, they went to great schools. We had friends. We did all the normal stuff. It was Life was busy, sure. We, we all had our good days and bad days, but I guess I was living the dream. A lovely, lo- lovely suburban house. We you know, had a pool. Kids were happy, healthy adjusted we they had good friends we had good friends we were busy and I guess happily so it's interesting to hear you say Craig you know I was living the dream do you think you knew that at the time no no I was blissfully ignorant of just how good I had it or we had it Mm -hmm. and and perhaps that's because then on August 6 2018 your world changed suddenly and forever uh unfortunately that is true yes um tell us what happened Sure. So um, I was at work. Uh, the emergency department at Royal North Shore Hospital called me. Uh, my wife had been found unconscious and without a pulse uh, beside a bike path, and she was undergoing some very serious treatment at the hospital, uh, and I needed to get myself safely but immediately uh, to the hospital. So my wife, who was a fit 46, uh, had been out on a run after dropping our youngest off at school and she had a heart attack. So we found out afterwards that her heart had developed a strange rhythm. Uh, Basically, it got confused, didn't know what to do, so it just stopped awaiting further instructions. Luckily, um, a cyclist came past shortly after and he was trained in CPR and 
he did the right thing at the right time. He uh, jumped off his bike and started pounding away. Three other passers-by turned up and they helped, uh, called the emergency services. They kept going with the CPR for 20 minutes. Wow. Because this, this was down a bike path right off, off the beaten track. Uh, so the police officers got there first, took over the CPR. The Ambos turned up five minutes later and took over, got her into the ambulance, got the paddles out, kept going with the CPR. So about 20 minutes after the police arrived, they got her to the hospital. Unfortunately, they hadn't been able to restart her heart by then. Thank goodness they did find just enough oxygen uh, registering in her finger to lead them to believe that the CPR had been amazingly great. So they did an emergency procedure and put her on a machine that kept her alive while they tried to work out what had gone wrong. Uh, So that was what I was told in this little family room off the emergency room when when I arrived. And that was, I guess, the, the start of the new phase or the the next phase of our lives. Craig, if you think back to those moments in that room and the enormity of just your life suddenly switching gear, what were some of the feelings? What was going through your mind? I actually developed kind of two-track thinking. It's really weird when I look back on it. So there was kind of freaking out Craig and there was this sensible guy co-piloting me. I guess this is a survival mechanism or something, but freaking out Craig was kind of dampened down, you know, like that. just that sentence, we've found your wife unconscious without a pulse. What's the difference between that and dead, right? That didn't, re- that didn't even register at the time. I was just un- unconscious. Okay, oh, what, she's, you know, she's fainted or something. So I was able to kind of drive a car without wrapping, wrapping, you know, around a tree or something, you know, park it, um, get, get this, you know, utter my name and all that sort of stuff. What happens after that very quickly is, you know, what do I do? What does this mean? Like, what do, what do I tell the kids? How do I call the parents and tell them that their daughter's been <clears throat> kept alive by a machine? What what does this mean for her? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? The the unknown, the uncertainty, the unknowable, the ambiguity was just off the charts beyond anything I'd ever come close to. And I imagine that continued and probably does to this very day, but particularly at that time, you're asking these questions and medicos don't have the answers. They're they're exploring this scenario as it's unfolding too and we want someone to give us the answers and the forecast and they don't have it. How do you deal with that? I, I've really had to learn to embrace uncertainty. Um, I, was always, I was always okay with uncertainty and, and ambiguity, but, th- you know, this was the next level or next couple of levels up. It's a double-edged sword or two, there's two sides of a coin here. Some, sometimes people say uncertainty is opportunity. Well, um, well it is. So that's yeah. my big thing, right? So this is horrible. I wouldn't wish this on any person or any family. However, it doesn't have to be 100% bad. There are good things within this, you know, and, and that's a bit of, of what I'm trying to, to, I guess, really focus on um, with the Brave New Bloke stuff mm. is is how, you know, how can we take uncertainty and, and bring the good, accept the bad because it is, you, you, you have to accept it, but you, you don't want to miss out on the good stuff, right? How did you 
tell your your kids and and your family members? So thankfully, I got some support already day one at the hospital. From there's a there was a wonderful support worker there called Victoria, a counsellor, and she guided me through uh, some of that. So it was a it was a gradual process because it, it took. 24 hours for them to get my wife's heart started again. Even today, I really struggle with that fact. I mean, she was in a coma for 10 days. She had seven operations. But, you know, 40 minutes on CPR is kind of off off the edge of statistics, right? So the uncertainty was at the extreme there. So I wasn't able to give anyone certainty. So I I drip-fed... I guess the the message to the kids they they to be honest they didn't need to know everything they needed to know that mum was in hospital that she'd had something uh, uh, something had gone wrong with her heart and she was being looked looked after by the best people and no we couldn't go in to visit her and I was going to you know focus on them and focus on her and mum was getting the best she could and that was kind of all I said for the for the first bit and then just really focused hard on trying to keep things normal. You know, they, they needed the stability and, and the normality, the normalcy to be able to keep going with their things rather than going straight into freak out mode. And to be honest, that probably ironically helped me deal with it because I had to keep it together and I had, you know, I, I had something to focus on, something that I could do something about because I was completely useless in the hospital, you know, and my wife was in a coma. So just, you know, okay, you can sit there and hold a hand. but Or you can make school I, lunches. Yeah, or exactly. <laughs> I can make sure that everyone's got the right stuff, the right bag and the right stuff in the bag and, you know, the saxophone goes to school and someone's got their PE gear and they get picked up and dropped off and they can still get to footy training and all that sort of stuff. And that's what I did. How long did she stay in hospital? So she was in hospital for 10 weeks all up. She had to get a pacemaker and a defibrillator put in to hopefully prevent this from ever happening again. I guess the, the you know, the hospitals were amazing. The support was amazing. The sad part of all of this is that when she um, did come out of the coma, they discovered that she had suffered brain injury uh, from lack of oxygen during the CPR, which was what everybody feared, but unfortunately what everybody expected. So that's very, very sad. She needs a lot of support. She has some chronic health problems, um, a lot of cognitive impairment, but unfortunately that's one of the things that we, so all of us in the family uh, and friends, have had to learn to accept um, that sort of after three years it's got about as good as it's going to get. So we're accepting that this is the this is the new normal for now. So you, Craig, effectively became a carer for four dependents instantly. Yes. I've now got three three school aged kids and 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 a wife who needs an awful lot of help um, through the day. I mean, we have a carer who comes uh, six days a week at the moment. Uh, to allow me to work and then do, you know, stuff with the kids on on the weekend, but they're not here 24 hours a day or anything. So there's a there's a lot. There's a lot going on. How old are your kids now, Craig? They are now 16, 13 and 11. Mm-hmm. And this was three years ago. So 
pretty young, pretty young when when yeah. their lives turned upside down too. And yep. as I'm listening to you share your story, the thing that comes up loudest is grief for, yes. for me as a, as a listener. The and grief is so much more than death, of course, as we know. It's well, I often say the difference between where we are and where we thought we would be. Yeah, and for you, that is a big gap. Yeah. Yeah. What is it that you grieve most? <sighs> Probably the, you know, my, I guess the loss of my life partner. Um, you know, you don't, I guess somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that one of you is going to, one of you is going to go first. I just didn't think we'd be in the middle of our 40s when it happened. And, and, and you don't realise all the assumptions you have about what, you know, anything from next week to next year to, you know, end of your career and retirement and kids growing up and all, you know, we, we all have these these things uh, that we assume will, will happen. And the anticipated milestones of life, aren't they? Yeah. So now, I mean, we'll yeah. get, we'll still have them, but uh, they'll be different. Mm-hmm. They'll be very different. And and I think that, I, I think the other thing that was hard to balance was the the hope before the grief. So the medical system is intrinsically optimistic and brain injuries are tricky and brains are tricky things and they can do all wonderful things and every case it's not like a broken arm every case is very very different so every, you know everybody held out hope that we would see significant improvements everybody worked very very hard and some improvements have, have resulted but to be honest no nowhere near what we'd hoped and that loss or letting go of that hope then led to the grieving, the, to the proper grieving, I guess, mm. in order to then, you know, move towards acceptance. So mm. it's, been a, it's been a process. At what point does the, sh- does the shift translate from hope to grief? How do we know when to let some of the hope go and to feel the grief? For me, it just happened. It was like a tsunami. So it was about two years in um, with the NDIS. You go through an annual review process. So you get all these reports. We changed to a new neuropsych and everybody said he was he was the best at this stuff and he'd done some very thorough um, diagnostics and assessments and he'd got hold of everything that had been done previously. So he kind of joined all the dots for us and he was the first person who really managed my expectations and said, all right, I, you know, we are now over two years into this and this is where we started and this is where we are. And to be honest, we shouldn't expect to see much of this stuff change from here. We, we can work on some of these things, but these other things are, you know, any sort of physical healing that would have happened has, has pretty much happened by now. At the same time, this was just coming off the end of uh, the holiday season. I'd spent, I'd taken a big chunk, three and a half weeks off, and spent all of that with the family, without all the other stuff that you know, work and you know, kids and this and that and the other. Um, so I really got to immerse myself into her reality, 
And I think that uninterrupted time allowed me to understand where she really was at uh, rather than where I hoped she was at. And then it just came. It just it hit me like a like a tsunami. That's the way I, I like these waves of grief just rolled over me and I couldn't stop it. So I let it happen. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was, you know, three, three or four tough months, I'd say. This was significant, you know, it, it's, uh, and it sometimes, you know, you need to be in it for a while and let it wash over you and then you slowly start to come out of it right, with an awful lot of help from an awful lot of people. Mm. As I listen to all of that, I mean, it's enormous, um, that weight that you're carrying um, and we're carrying with all that grief and, and I... It, you know, it sounds like the caring you were doing was so exponential for everybody around you. You're trying to, you know, do, you know, cleaning, driving, cooking, homework, you know, care for everybody. Who who, who was caring for you? Um, look, I, some people tried, but I don't think at that stage I was very good at letting them in. I think, to be honest, when I look back, I think a lot of it was kind of my avoidance or coping strategy. Uh, I was just throwing myself into busyness. And and it worked, right? Making it about other people and keeping myself busy, that kept me upright and kept my powder relatively dry. People would reach out. I was probably pretty hopeless at articulating what help I needed or, or could accept. So, therefore, they, they didn't disappear. It wasn't like I was a hermit, but... Um, We'd catch up, but most of the time I'd just say, oh, look, I'm, I'm just really, really busy. I'm okay. I'm, I'll, I'll call you back when I've got to spare, you know, 15 minutes, and that would be three weeks later or something. Did you find anyone who could relate to your story? So, yeah, I did find a, probably one person in, in particular who's – so what, what Tuva, my wife, went through is very rare. Um, I've, I've found a few other people who's – spouses or family members have had what's called a traumatic head injury or brain injury so that's you know as the result of like a physical physical accident um you know it's it's a bit like um you hear sort of people with um substance abuse problems saying it's only another person who's who suffers from this who really understands and it's the same thing i felt that there were a lot of wonderful supportive people around but until i met with people who were caring for another person with a brain injury I never you know you just you connected on every single level level instantly so as kind of luck would have it there was one of the mums from school whose husband had gone through a, a traumatic brain injury so she's been amazingly and she was kind of I don't know seven years ahead of me on this journey so it was it was awesome to have to have someone to talk to about about that is there some sort of permission in that conversation then with someone who truly deeply empathises where you can go into the places that are... That, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, you know, we were reasonable friends before that, but this just took it up to 11 and both of us, I think, I'm, you know, I like to think that I was able, I'm able to help her as well um, in terms of sharing that stuff that, you know, I, I guess I could share it with some people, I probably have, but they, it, it's hard to appreciate what what that means until you've lived it so there's that that's been amazingly amazingly helpful mm. and then you went on to write a book Craig and I'm also curious um and of course our listeners can't see this but the name on your zoom says this 
is yoga. Oh, yes. <laughs> My, mine says Sabina Reed. Yes. So I'm curious what this is yoga means to you as a part of your healing process. Oh, so yoga has been amazingly, amazingly important to me throughout this journey. This is yoga. Uh, this is an unin- uh, unintentional plug. That's actually the name of, of uh, my, a business I own. So it's I, I own three uh, yoga studios in Sydney on top of all the other stuff I do. That's been some something really meaningful me, for me to throw myself into at the same time. But just the practice of yoga throughout this has been something that I found during this this period to be just so helpful for that wonderful combination of mind, body and soul. Which had you touched or explored prior, prior to oh, a, a, a little bit, but never, it, it hadn't clicked. Just like, you know, I guess meditation hadn't clicked. Yeah, a number of things hadn't clicked for me. But when I re- retried them after this, it it was that aha moment on on on, on some new things, which are, which are now regular parts of my life. What do they do for you? Well, they just make me a better version of me. So I, you know, it's it's that simple. I mean, we can't go into it, the yoga studio at the moment, but I, I I liken it to whatever's going on in my life. I can leave. I can park it at the door. I can go into that studio. I get. 60 minutes of me time i get physical you know my body my mind and my soul are improved are are assisted and we cut all the rest of the noise off and then we're released back out a better version a better version of ourselves and you just kind of float float off and some of these things that were driving you nuts beforehand are no longer that important and this is a, a question that's separate to a brain injury story specifically but there'll be many people listening who will relate to i've tried yoga i've tried meditation and to use your words craig it hasn't clicked what would you, what would you say to them who are perhaps searching well i would say maybe it's not the right time for you but maybe you didn't try the right version of it or maybe you didn't try it for long enough like i i don't want to force anything down anyone's throat a lot of people think of yoga as a physical practice you know oh i can't do that i'm not flexible doesn't matter doesn't matter right people people start it for the physical and they stay for the rest they stay for the mind and the soul uh benefits uh the physical stuff's awesome and you'll get stronger and more flexible and more mobile, but that's probably not why people stick with it. It's that whole revitalization of all your in, inner working bits, um, that better version of yourself, that me time. And I think the learning to let go of some of this other extraneous stuff that we can get stuck on but if we're really honest about isn't really what life's all about the well the extrinsic reward versus that intrinsic richness that you can build for yourself so you've always got a well to draw on when you say um it makes you a better version of yourself when you reflect on what you have been through over and and your family over the last years do you think that's made you a better version of yourself oh look i think so I, i think it's brought out best in me but probably also the worst i can honestly say i feel good about myself about what i've been able to do i have a level of i guess confidence and self-belief now that i didn't have before i know i can deal with a lot 
I've also seen myself and other people have seen me at my worst, I guess, and, but I survived that, right? Uh, yeah. The, wheel, the wheels didn't come off completely. Unfortunately, you know, suffering builds character. I wish there was a way to do it without the suffering, but we haven't found that yet. I think that the Buddhists have known that for a long time, haven't they? I believe they have. <laughs> so you went then on to to, to found or launch um, Brave New Blokes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is early days, I hope, for, for Brave New Blokes. So as, as I came through my, I guess, grieving and acceptance phase and started to think about uh, what happened and what it all meant. Um, I started sharing my my story with more people, and I was surprised, I guess, by how many. You know, once I'd opened up about the challenges I'd been through, how many people I knew had been through some pretty horrible things, but I had no idea. Also, how many people j- found it. Uh, useful both the sharing as well as some of the kind of tricks and techniques and hacks and things I'd I'd worked out along the way. So it's very male-focused at the moment. I I think a lot of it's probably generic, but I I believe that blokes in general struggle with a lot of this more than and I'm generalising horribly here, more than women do. They seem to have some of this stuff down pat better than us blokes do. Uh, What do you mean struggle with what is this stuff? So I think guys struggle with, I guess, admitting that they're struggling, admitting that it's tough. I think they don't, we don't always face into problems. We've... We're not very good at asking for help. We're probably not that good about being open and honest and vulnerable about the really tough stuff. We're also not awesome at giving what I call active support. Guys will say, if you need me, you know where I am. What What's active support? Active support is really leaning in. It's really reaching in. It's not fixing, right, because that's our, you know, we're, we're all great fixers. It's you know, when you when when you don't hear from your mate for three or four weeks and you know he's having a tough time, it doesn't mean everything's okay. It actually means it's not okay, probably. You can text him, you can call him if he doesn't if he doesn't call back. You don't just say, Oh, well, you know where I am, call me if you need me. That's when you pop around. You have to reach in, uh, make sure that they're okay or do your best to and provide provide something, right? Because often what they really need to do is talk. Like the I, I never understood the power of talking until I went through my grieving. It's magical. But just <laughs> this, because we, we get stuck in our thoughts and we ruminate and I've spent, you know, countless countless nights at 3 a.m. going through this again and again and again, but I'm not sure that got me anywhere. But the process of talking about it with another person, so the magic happens, right? You start to move forward. So I think we're also not very good at forgiving ourselves. We're not very good at failing well, and we're not that good at looking after ourselves when things get tough. We're much better at beating ourselves up or just kind of white, you know, ignoring it or white knuckling it through. Mm-hmm. And I guess in my case, I don't believe I had any role models or training, certainly not from men, um, in my childhood. So when when this happened, I would I you know I didn't really know what to do. 
there, there, there was no instruction manual. If there was, I wouldn't have read it anyway. But, you know, if all else fails, you eventually do read the instruction manual. But Or write your own. Well, I guess, uh, you know, that's what I'm try- trying in my own little way to, to do at the moment, at least from what I've learnt, uh, to try to help. So I, I think that's what I'm trying to do. First, just open up and normalise life is messy, but at the same time share what I've learnt because I've I kind of hacked my way through this and tried lots of stuff that didn't work. I'm very happy to share what what I where I ended up so or where I have ended up so far in 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 the hope that this will be of assistance to others. What is it that you hope for yourself when you think about your own future? What is it you want to understand more about life or yourself? So I think I what I'm working on is is still that I guess the acceptance and probably letting certain things go so that I can move forward and enjoy the present as well as the future. It's that it's that part of that healing and happiness is wanting what you have, not having what you want. I am or we are where we are. There's nothing I can do about that. It it it's all up up here, right? It's all about how I look at it and how I think about it. And then from that that point of of acceptance then just being able to move forward in in a positive way and continue to pursue what I find meaningful. And I, you know, the, that's another one of the good things out of this is that it's kind of it's forced me to get really, really clear about the meaningful things in my life. And I now have an opportunity to pursue them wholeheartedly. I was probably cru- I was definitely cruising through life before this happened. And now I I'm genuinely living a life in pursuit of, of meaning, which is very fulfilling. How can people um, engage with you through Brave New Blokes? What's the way for our listeners um, to access that kind of information and learning? So I've, uh, at the moment, the website's the best way uh, to get hold of me. Uh, so it's bravenewblokes.com.au. If they go along there, I can, uh, if they register um, or subscribe, they'll get a weekly email. They'll also get some information on my my seven H's, which is the, the I guess, the model that I've put this together in uh, that, that helps me structure up the some things that I've, I've found to be helpful. What are the seven H's, Craig? The seven H's, they are head, heart, health, help, healing, headwinds and habits. Hooray! Yeah. Well, hopefully <laughs> happiness at the end, right? So, um, or, or not, or not. I'm no, going to question that or challenge that. It could be or peace or acceptance well, or integration. I, I, I okay. I accept that completely. I think happy happiness is not lovey, lovey, joy, joy everywhere. <laughs> lovey, lovey, joy, joy. That's not on brave new blokes. <laughs> no. <laughs> But I think happiness or, or, you know, that, that acceptance and or peace is anyone who's struggling is, is really looking for. Craig, um, as you open out, you know, in your own story and own your story and with all its rawness and, and complexity, have you found some people who retreat, who, who are not willing to come near it because it's too hard? A- ab- absolutely. It's, it's challenging, right? Like there were, and, I, and I'm really not judging because um, I've, been there before but when I because I I sort of 
became a hermit for a while because I was dealing with all this stuff. And then you sort of pop up on the street and you might bump into someone at the coffee shop or whatever. I found very early on I needed to be really careful what <laughs> how I answered the question, how's it going, or I haven't seen you for a while, what have you been up to? There's no kind of light version of this story. It's sort of zero or 100. And you'd see the people's the whites of people's eyes and they'd recoil and they'd be like, I've got to go. Mm. And it's like, all right, whoops, okay, went too far then. I'm really, really not judging because it's it's a lot to take on and a lot of us aren't really don't really know how to how to deal deal with that whereas others kind of people who probably weren't a huge part of my life all of a sudden reached in and you know I got home six hours later and there's like three lasagnas on the front door step uh, and a and a post-it note saying you know text me when text me when you're done Leave, leave the dishes outside and I'll, you know, let me know what you like and you'll get something else next week. It's, it was mind-blowing what, what people would do, which was just, I mean, so heartwarming and my, my faith in human nature is, is just sky high after what we've been through. What about as a parent, Craig? Do you, uh, you've got three kids. Are, yeah. are any of them sons? They're, in fact, they all are. Okay, you've got three sons. So you, you're talking a little bit, particularly through the Brave New Blokes lens of gender and what you didn't get growing up. And as a parent now, you've got these very rich insights through your own lived experience. What will you share of that with your sons? I'm already sharing a bunch of it. So I, I'm, uh, there's, there's no way to hide this as, as you go through it. I've been juggling that, I guess, the role modelling side of it the openness the dealing with my own challenges helping mum helping them you know that as well as kind of keep the train keeping the trains running on time that that's the that's the joke you know they're, they're all the plates that I'm trying to keep spinning on, on, on any given time but you know when when push comes to shove I, I think you know some of this stuff that we're talking about now is actually more important than than actually getting to soccer practice on time or, or whether or not you've got uh, the right kind of muesli bar in your lunch or something. So I, you know, the the, the boys have seen me, as I said, at, at my best and worst throughout this and I try, I, I am a pretty op- open fella at the best of times or at the normal times, but certainly with them, I, we have had more high-quality interactions in the last three years than we probably did in the previous 13 and 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 when I spoke before about some of the good things to come out of this that is top of the list the the uh, I mean I was lucky enough to uh, I used to live in Sweden I'm always Swedish so I actually benefited from the the system over there and I did have pater- paternity leave with each of the three boys so we had a strong relationship from you know age of less than one which I'm so grateful for, but so that when, you know, having dad present in the everyday um, messy stuff was normal. So it wasn't weird for me to suddenly be doing all this stuff anyway, but the what we've been able to build upon from there, because I'm, you know, I'm not doing both par- parental roles, but I'm doing a lot of both parental roles, uh, had, you know, the, that's so meaningful. The, the opportunity to do this 
I am so grateful for. I, you know, so dearly wish I didn't have to do it. Don't get me wrong, but I'll take that, right? Like I'll, I'll, I'll take the good bit given that we've all had to have the bad bit. Um, so that, that, you know, we have our good days and bad days and we can have our fights and all of that sort of stuff. But the, the relationship that I now have with, with the boys is just, just wonderful and so meaningful and heartwarming. And you talk a lot about messiness, Craig, which is something that we talk about in human cogs ad nauseum sometimes. <laughs> we know how messy, we know how confusing, we know how complex life is and you have done a beautiful job describing and inviting us into the layers of your life and we're wondering who you think is doing human well. Yes, I did pick that question up from some of your podcasts. So I'd, I'd say if uh, so no sort of uh, famous people. I would actually say uh, the first uh, thing I'd say is single parents. Nobody or very few people choose to be single parents. You end up there because something didn't quite work out right. Uh, and there can be stigmas associated with single parents and you don't necessarily fit into that sort of ideal in the schoolyard or any of that sort of stuff. Single parents work hard and they don't necessarily have that that support that you take for granted when you're in a, even if you're in an average relationship where as, oppo- as opposed to an awesome one. And then you layer COVID and all that stuff on top of it and, you know, you, it just gets harder. Um, I'd probably add to that the squeeze generation. So this is obviously I'm looking at this through through my lens. So the squeeze generation, so the the people with kids and with aging parents, uh, you know, I've been through that. Um, that was tricky. Add COVID and homeschooling and all that sort of stuff on top of it, and it, it's off the charts. And then I'd probably just add there's so many amazing people in you know health workers emergency services frontline they do a great job anyway but now they're what they're actually dealing with at the moment in in the pandemic is you know mind-blowing there's a sheet of plastic between you and a covid positive person you've still got to do everything you do and then somehow you've got to take that off wash that off and go home and kiss your kids at night uh that that must, you know, I know some people who work work in health and that's that's tough, right? Uh, so they're, uh, you know, they front up every day for the tough, you know, the toughest days of their career at the moment um, despite all of that. So they're to be, they're to be lauded. Fun at how not to cry in these conversations because your level of um, gratitude and empathy in your answer was so rich and so loud it wasn't just one person and as you said it wasn't a famous person it wasn't wasn't only one person it was these groups of humans that as you said through your own lens you relate to and the power of that is overwhelming in the ripple effect in our community for one person to be able to acknowledge all of the people who are single parents, not through their choice, as you rightly said, no one is, and to be able to acknowledge all of the sandwich generation people managing and caring for parents and children and dependents, and then to be able to acknowledge all of the medicos and first responders, you're acknowledging with deep love and gratitude and you're seeing millions of other people, and I think that's what struck me so loudly in your response. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for having me and thank you for doing what you do because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.